Hi, and welcome to ContourCast. My name is Kat Boyd, and I'm joined with my glamorous co-host, Dave Uh Fine. Yeah. Um, all cored out. Yeah. Um, we've embarked upon an interesting experiment, no longer using social media. Well, yeah, I think we're taking a break, aren't we? Hmm. So I quit Twitter on Saturday, and then I had to log back on to share something on Sunday. Um, uh, which is a bit dumb, but uh, yeah, off Twitter we're going to go for a week, aren't we? Mm-hmm. Um, I found it really interesting already, by the way, because you hear people saying that uh, you know it's kind of habitual; uh, it has a kind of chemical impact on your brain and stuff like that. Um, so obviously over the weekend there were the really big uh, George Floyd protests in the US but also in the UK and uh, like every time I saw a headline or something, so I saw a headline on the BBC News that said um, largely peaceful protests marred by violence and my instant uh, instinct was to react to that, do you know what I mean, to get on Twitter and say, well, here's a class example of the BBC editorialising, deciding that a protest has been marred. Who are they? To, do you know what I mean? I instantly yeah. went into that mode. But then I was sort of like, I can't. I cannot yeah. respond. I think that that's partly, like, to, I think that headlines these days are written for, like, the, the Twitterati, you know? Mm. Um, like, especially something that decides who is an acceptable protester and who's an unacceptable protester. Um, you know, the BBC always fear the mob. Mm. And But you're right, because it gets, it gets various groups of people instantly determined to respond mm-hmm. via social media. All those people who are not considered legitimate protests instantly respond. All those sort of people who don't think there's any such thing as a legitimate protest instantly respond. But the interesting thing about that is, like, none of it means anything. So I had this urge to respond as though that meant something um, or could mean something. And of course, it doesn't mean anything. It's just a tweet blasted out into the void. Well, this is the thing. I mean, the reality of life is that no one really cares what I tweet. No, does anybody care what we think? I, I mean, I struggle to care what I think, you know. Yeah, even even tweet tweet like tweeters, tweeters, uh, tweeters who you might think it would be important what they say, it sort of turns out not to be the case. Is it important anymore in any kind of meaningful, meaningful sense? way? No. What what, well, this, what Donald Trump says on Twitter? I don't well, think this is. is what I find quite interesting about Twitter at the moment. Um, is that uh, the, I was going to say something there and it's totally gone. Uh, you were saying people on Twitter. What was, it, what was it you just said? Well, even the most important people whose, whose tweets might mean something, do even their tweets count? Does Donald Trump's? Well, 
I don't think anyone's tweets really count for anything. I mean, what Twitter is good for and why I'll never be able to like fully quit it is like, that's where I get my news, you mm. know? Like that's where you get your news as well. What I've noticed is that because, you know, we always live in social media bubbles based on who we follow, but I've noticed that people that I follow are kind of, a lot of them are like telling other people how they should be behaving so like you know people should be educating themselves and checking their privilege and not doing this or doing this or whatever but because of the bubble and the algorithm I never see dissenting opinions on that so it just looks like everyone is screaming into this void because mm. no, no one is saying no, no one on those timelines or in those algorithms is saying anything wrong but there's a lot of, to all my white friends on this social media feed posted by one of my white friends. No, no. Like, you better do X, Y, Z. It's like, um, don't be doing this, don't be doing that. And I'm just like, but nobody's saying, is it, you know, <laughs> like, obviously, the people I follow on Twitter are mostly lefties, apart from uh, recently following Jordan Peterson, because it was suggested oh, yeah. to me by Twitter. Yeah, I got a I... little bar of three who, who you might want to follow characters. I thought he was unwell. I thought he uh, had I think a... he's back. Like, he's, his Twitter is back on. He was in mm. hospital for a long time. I think he had a benzo addiction. He was really uh-huh. unwell for a while. Um, but, like, I, I... Twitter suggested people to follow, and it was um, Keir Starmer, Dave Rubin, <laughs> and Jordan Peterson. And I was like, mm. one out of three ain't bad. Yeah, I, I think Peterson is interesting. Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't think he's—I don't think he's like the devil or some crazed fascist. Like, I think that he's uh, one of my favorite grifters. Like, yeah. I love a con artist. Like, I'm really I, obsessed with grifters I, and con artists, and he is one of the kings. I have to admit to being extremely irritated by him, to be honest, because to me, his grift is very transparent, and I don't understand why more people can't see. That, that he hasn't got a clue what he's talking about. But that's just me. I only follow a few right-wing people on Twitter. And a few. Every, so often, uh, every so often I'll be like scrolling idly through Twitter and like a comment will appear as though, you know, like a lightning bolt in the Twitter feed like, <laughs> I mean, like something, you know, sort of bizarrely socially illiberal or something like that. Um, and it does, I suppose it does remind you that there are whole other worlds of opinion uh, out there. Uh, I mean, I'm a complete weirdo and I listen to quite a lot of like theological podcasts. So I'll follow the weird Calvinists or like right-wing Catholics who, uh, who make these podcasts on Twitter. And there'll just be suddenly a dash of ultra socially illiberal opinion uh, appearing in an otherwise sea of of social liberalism. It's a very strange experience. But yeah, I mean, the uh, the it's also the algorithm. It's not even just who you follow. It's that you know you uh, you mainly see comments from uh, from people you interact with, you know, which has as as warping an impact on on. Uh, the sort of discourse around society that you're seeing. Do you think silence is complicity? What does that even mean? <laughs> you must have seen this on Twitter. If basically, yeah. if you don't tweet something, if you don't tweet a black square on 
Blackout Tuesday, then you're complicit in racism. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's not what Martin Luther King meant. Do you know what I mean? I th- I'm I, sure he made speeches where he said, you know, it comes to a point where if you're not saying... Yeah, that, I don't think it means if you don't tweet on this like platform that's owned by like a tech giant... Yeah, and um, only about five... Dubious practices that no one's going to see, then you're complicit. Like, I yeah. guess I really, yeah. And only only about 5% of the world's population even have an account, probably less than that, to be honest. Um, yeah. It's essentially uh, a, a networking tool for middle class people. It's like if you haven't posted this black, black square on LinkedIn. LinkedIn is, I don't under, I don't know what that is really. No. I think I, I have, I think I have a LinkedIn, but. I don't. I never really understood what it was for. So, for anyone who doesn't know, the black square that we are referring to is the day of social media activism last Tuesday, where people. Well, actually, you know, this was started by music executives. The black square, yeah. So it started by two music executives. I can't remember which company. I mean, music executives like the music industry has a disgraceful history of ripping off black artists Mm -hmm. like it's endemic so two music executives started this blackout tuesday where people were you know encouraged to post a black square therefore not participating in social media in some way um which as if that makes any difference like post on black square is still clearly performing a a version of yourself or the social consumption on social media but all the people who were doing it were hashtagging it with black lives matter and the black activists who are actually on the ground and involved in the face-to-face confrontation with the state and um, with police like all of their information networks were being clogged up and they couldn't actually get information because mm. they use the Black Lives Matter hashtag to pass on info on the ground. So it was then being clogged up with all these uh, these black squares from the armchair activists. It was, yeah. uh, it was quite something to watch. Yeah, by the way, I think that this whole phenomenon of um, corporate entities weighing in on the protest movement is really fascinating because it's largely companies who... Like, I saw someone say of it, like, you have to accept that what people are calling woke capital is a real thing. So you have a situation where different elements of the capitalist system are genuinely putting their chips, they're betting their house on a certain, a certain form of social development. And the attitude of people at something like Spotify, they don't care that they're going to lose a degree of custom over saying things like that, over saying things like Black Lives Matter. Presumably some conservatives uh, and Trump supporters and people like that listen to Spotify. But they have a model worked out where they are saying, listen, you know, first of all, 80% of people who use our products are liberals. And that we're only expecting that demographic to grow in the coming decades and we want to be on the ground floor with its cultural ideas and stuff like that there's a whole industry if i could go away and study any industry in the world today it would probably be the modern world of pr 
because there are whole theories in that world now about um, how you use political ideas to brand your products and theories about how um, famously, very famously, so famously, it's cliche, Coca-Cola successfully captured elements of um, the sort of 68 generation and its ideas about individual freedom and self-expression and stuff like that. There are similar debates going on in corporate boardrooms in, well, in the, in the PR departments about, look, there are social changes, cultural changes underway. And the way that you market things these days is not by saying my product is better than this product. It's by identifying your product with certain movements of opinion and attitude and aesthetic uh, in society. Um, so I think it's really interesting. And the thing that has made me think, before we get on to the real stuff, by the way, we should probably talk about the like absolutely massive demonstrations which have broken out around the world. But it did make me think, like, I think we need to accept that people hate that phrase, the liberal elite, because it's used by people like Nigel Farage and Steve Bannon and people like that, um, who want to elide the reality, of course, that they are themselves members of the elite, albeit a different faction. But the liberal elite is a real thing. Like, the, it's a governance structure in a lot of um, creative industries, cultural industries, education, uh, lots of public services of that kind. Ultimately, you will find in academia, for example, it is true that there's a substantial body of liberal opinion. It's overstated. I mean, I, when I was at Strathclyde University, which is supposed to be a sort of red brick former polytechnic in Glasgow, therefore communist or something, I actually found that the politics department and the economics department were dominated by conservatives uh, or, or, or neoliberals, I suppose, open kind of centre-right neoliberals. So it's easy to overstate the hegemony of a so-called liberal elite, but it is real. Like, it is real that, that modern capitalism couldn't function without that part of society having a significant stake in a lot of its institutions. Um, and I, I don't think you can have a serious debate about modern politics without accepting uh, that that's a, a real development uh, with a future and that's going to that's gonna shape coming conflicts, but also contain them. So, like, I saw on the demonstrations this weekend in the United States, you got the usual round of people saying, oh, look, Mitt Romney's on this huge demonstration. On the one hand, right, that, re that, that tells you something about tensions inside the Republican Party that so-called moderate Republicans have really badly fallen out with Trump again over this latest time which they no doubt see is irresponsible for American capitalism that it's losing control of the streets in, in major cities um, but it also does tell you that that kind of liberal wing of the system has a serious role to play uh, in containing dissent you know, he's not just there because he's angry with Trump. He's there because he knows that members of the establishment need to be seen to be part of this movement. That's how effective it's become. That's how dangerous it's become. For the future health of the system, there need to be substantial elements of the elite now aligning themselves with the Black Lives Matter protests. 
Um, and it's fascinating to watch that actually. It's fascinating to watch the, those developments underway. I don't know if you saw this, but uh, in Minneapolis, Fuck me. I'm in the middle of recording something, man. I'll call you back. Is that okay. Shafi? Yes. <laughs> uh. Right, okay, I'll just say that again. Uh, I don't know if you've seen this, but in Minneapolis, the city council has said that they will uh, abolish the police. Yeah, I think the article was um, defund the police. Like, I mean, this is this is massive. This is such a victory for those huge demonstrations. Um, and, you know, like, the amount of effort and energy that must take to go day after day after day in that confrontation is incredible. Mm -hmm. So, like, I think that what this has proven is that, like, you know, as we would argue, that the movements can win. You know, they can win concessions mm -hmm. for sure. I mean, I think that on the what you were saying earlier um, about like woke capitalism, I mean, I think that we have to, I think we have to peel apart some of the, the points here because I think that there's two different things happening. So the idea of businesses, particularly big corporations like Spotify, Citibank, um, these kind of big corporations, I, you know putting out statements netflix black lives matter and saying these things like i mean these companies they don't have feelings right so you can't we can't just say oh they, of course they don't mean it but what they're doing is of course they're looking to exploit new markets like and if there's you know we we're talking about at the start you know headlines are written in order for people to perform their outrage and to see that as an outlet for how they feel is the same for companies I think are now, especially big companies, are looking for new markets to exploit. It's, as you say, it's not a new thing like Coca-Cola. Like even in our lifetime, we've seen it with like the student movement. Um, feminism is also another thing that's been used to open up new markets. But I think that it's a different thing that's happening with like political structures in the US because we can't just, I don't think that we can just talk about like Republicans as being the party of capital that have to be in on the demonstrations because it's um useful to do so because the republicans and the democrats are are both parties of capital in the u.s like very clearly like they're both like i mean two cheeks of the same arse i guess like <clears throat> and what's happening is that within both of those parties there's a fundamental breakdown between the liberal elite parts of both republicans and democrats and then the more insurgent aspects so trump and sanders within within those elements i think mitt romney going on a demonstration is one example of what you're talking about but the, the liberal elites trying to mm, impose their control not just on the party but more broadly on the, the discourse but i don't know if you've seen hillary clinton's latest uh, Twitter profile picture. I don't know if you had the joy of seeing that before you cancelled your account, but it's her with like a black mask over her face um, and the word vote written on it. Oh, okay, yeah. So that's going to be a major operation. Yeah, so there's going to be a huge yeah. like Democrat operation. I mean, the big, the big irony, I think, 
whilst you know the, this mass movement has been successful is that when it comes to the election in November like the the democratic candidate is going to be Joe fucking Biden who's a mm. racist I know but I, I, that's why I think that they're going to try and use this movement as like cover do you know what I mean they're going to say that they're going to probably tone down the extent to which this is Biden and increase the extent to which it's an anti-Trump. Yeah, I think that there's lots problem. of Republicans who would rather have Biden than Trump in power. Yeah. Like, this absolutely. Is... Like, you're kind of, like, soft uh, George W. Bush, Romney-type characters would rather see Joe Biden. They have more in common. I think that some of Trump... So, obviously, there'll be a problem for Trump, which is that the two sides of his vote first of all like people overestimate the extent to which republicans distanced themselves from trump in the first election they didn't like moderate republicans largely voted for trump um the the problem trump now has is if you look at the two broadly conceived wings of his movement and actually it's a really complex vote his his first electoral uh, his first presidential victory made up of lots of different component parts but for the really hardline racists in Trump's coalition, the riots and the demonstrations and the movement and the Black Lives Movement, uh, Black Lives Matter movement, general uh, movement in, in, in general, is uh, a humiliation for them. Trump came in saying, "I'm going to be the one to make America great again," which, as people rightly kind of point to, is a phrase that comes along with a body of ideas about the restoration of perhaps a a white conservative view of American society. He has been unable to uh, stop the divisions in American society, which right-wing conservatives and, and racist conservatives saw as so corrosive, right? So they they saw Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter, of course, emerged during Obama's presidency, and they saw it as a symptom of the decline of America under this demonic figure, Barack Obama. So Trump's sheer inability to restrain that movement, which is, of course, now much bigger than it ever was under Obama, is a real humiliation to the right wing of Trump. There must be now a body of so-called moderate Republican opinion, which is saying, you know, like they hate the Democrats, they don't like Biden, but this has gone, this has gone too far. There might be an element of people saying, this is just crazy, man. Do you know what I mean? Trump, uh, I don't know if you saw this, um, when he was announcing the reopening of Amer the American economy, he said that uh, George Floyd was looking down in heaven and that it was a good day for him. Like, there will be a, a part of the Republican base that just say, he is going to honestly ignite, like, a massive movement if, if he continues to behave in this kind of provocative way. But he's in a bind because... Who's going to win the election in November? I su suggest it's who can mobilise their base. So Trump is acting in a deliberate action he possibly can because he needs to mobilise his base. There's no other explanation for why he would say George Floyd was looking down in heaven, from heaven approvingly on Trump's economic policies. Um, then he, he wants to cause insult. Um, so... Like, I don't, I mean, it's a really, really, it's going to be a really strange election. People say it's going to be like 68 and Nixon, and Nixon's going to harness this backlash against the decline of, I think there's a lot, there's a lot more complex than that.
your line is really bad. Like you keep breaking up. Fuck. Uh, just we'll just keep going. We'll just have to deal with it. But it's a bit choppy. Okay. Um. So. Well. The other thing about the election in November is that PS we're still in the midst of a pandemic. Yeah, yeah, everyone I seems mean, to have forgot about that. Like, I feel like I've been watching leftists and liberals on the internet get themselves twisted into knots about should people go to the protests or should people not because of the pandemic, especially the UK especially in Scotland and this is like I feel like we've been pretty consistent in saying that the idea of lockdown and the you know stay at home policies like these were the wrong lessons to learn from China like I'm not an anti-lockdown person but I think that we've been consistent in saying that actually it's not locking down and keeping people at home that makes the difference it's testing you know, it's having an integrated public health response, all these things which we don't have, which is, like, I think it, well, I'm not an anti-lockdowner, like, I think that, you know, it did need to happen at the time that it did, but in terms of, like, how we get out of this, you know, how we get out of a lockdown situation, we need to have, like, alternatives that aren't just no big crowds, otherwise it's going to seriously crush, like, any kind of resistance, any kind of revolt, like any kind of expression of discontent. Um, and I do actually worry about that because obviously at the weekend there was protests arranged in Glasgow, but the organisers, I think, came under quite a lot of pressure to cancel those protests. I think there was still quite a big turnout at Glasgow Green. And I think that kind of like physical solidarity is, is dead important. Like, and I'm, I'm not really in a position to tell people like not to go. Um, and I know that there was online protests organised instead, but that's that's not really the same thing. Like we know that if it was like you can't have socialism through social media, like it's just not mm. going to happen. Um, when people are like performatively expressing opinions that you know more often than not are conformist, um, you know I think that we have to really defend the idea of people being able to use public space. Um, but part of that has to come through uh, pressuring on like testing, on tracing, on the isolation, if people are infected, on having like good uh, support for workers who you know need to be tested or who need to isolate, like all of these different things so that we can try and like reclaim public space because it's, you know I mean, we can't continue to be in this situation where we're all like locked up in our houses going slowly mental i mean that might just be me i might be exposing myself too much here but uh i agree with that i also think there's a problem that we don't know when under what circumstances and what powers the government have to reintroduce lockdown yeah that's partly my point you know like that it'll be on and off on and off on and off we could be at the height of a mass movement and, and governments suddenly declare a new phase of lockdown. In fact, you know what I mean? That I'm almost certain that, that that will happen in some countries. I'm sure it is already happening. That, you know what I mean? That governments will cut short mass mobilizations over questions themselves partly prompted by the pandemic. 
uh, and just cut it off with a lockdown. So yes, uh, I agree that that's a serious problem. It was probably unwise for some on the left to sort of go around policing folk going to the park or the beach. Totally, man. Like I don't know, I don't know why why people thought that was that was a good thing, you know. And I've tried to be quite. Uh, rigorous in my defence of lockdown breakers, Caroline Calderwood. Anyone? Yeah, I haven't. I, I've, I've. You I've, were, you were calling for her head. I was like, I was like, get rid of her. Um, no, I, also yeah. like people sunbathing, like people, you know, going to the beach, people going to start. Like, I don't care. I'm not saying no. that these things are the same as a protest. By the way, I'm just saying, like, I think that it's a slippery slope, and I see people getting themselves tied in knots about how you can justify one and the other. And not the other, rather. But this is like partly for me, it's a window into the kind of the, the liberal view of the world where all activity is seen as goodies and baddies. That mm. all politics is seen through the lens of good people and bad people, good actions and bad actions. That it's like some sort of big, what's that thing that everybody likes? Star Wars. It's like some big Star Wars film. Mm-hmm. Like there's goodies and baddies in that, isn't there? Yeah, well, exactly. The, the people want this kind of uh, that kind of narrative arc. Um, same with kind of like Harry Potter. I mean, I don't think, by the way, that it's uh, meaningless. I've never that, read Harry Potter. Me neither. Me neither. I don't think it's should we? I've seen a couple of the films. You know what happens in it. I mean, it's just there's a bunch of like I wizard s- kids. I mean, I saw the at a private school. They I... the bad guys. They're liberals. <laughs> I said, well, I mean, that makes sense because J.K. Rowling's a, a liberal, isn't she? Yeah, arch, arch liberal. Currently um, fueling the old culture war, I, I hear. Oh, yeah, of course. Uh, you, know, you, everyone falls foul of it. Everyone knows that, you know. If, you, if you're part of the, of, uh, of the witch hunt, eventually you will be burnt. This is the way it works. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's not unimportant that both Harry Potter, I'm not even joking about this, and Star Wars have become motifs for the liberal movement. So like um, J.K. Rowling herself referred to Scottish nationalists as Death Eaters, who are bad guys, obviously, in the Harry Potter world. Um, that's it's partly the motivation behind Hillary Clinton dubbing the Democratic Party the resistance. That comes from Star Wars. That makes me cringe so yeah. hard that it's going to give me a medical condition yeah but interestingly in both of those worlds as you rightly say the good guys and the bad guys aren't delimited by class the good guys are a, a cross class alliance of people who are virtuous and the bad guys are a cross class alliance of people who are satanic right um, so like as a general rule, right, and this is, I suppose, a kind of trot 101 idea about politics, you should reserve most of your criticisms for people in positions of economic, social, and political power, real power. And the more powerful they are, the more prepared you should be to criticize them. The less power people have, the less prepared you should be to criticize them. Not without exception. Like, I mean, most of the kind of guys who go along to an EDL demonstration are not powerful in their day-to-day lives, right? That doesn't mean that they are beyond criticism for what they're doing. But just in general terms, you should be very wary of things like the state 
uh, and things like giant corporations and they should be the focus of your criticism. Whereas I feel like a lot of the time in modern politics, people on what is called the left spend an inordinate amount of time criticizing such characters from the magazine Viz. Do you know what I mean? They, they, they spend a lot of time complaining about people who go on holiday cruises. They spend a lot of time complaining about um, English nationalists and a sort of, you know, white van man, that kind of stuff. Like caricatures. This is the culture war. Yeah. Like caricatures, this is... caricatures that they've built up in their mind as everything I hate about the world. Do you know where I, 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 I think this stuff came like? I always resent now not criticising this at the time. Every single time there's an international football tournament, the amount of people jumping up and down and complaining about England's English football, football fans, right? Now, again, I'm, I'm sure that you could if you wanted to criticise uh, that kind of behaviour. Sometimes football hooligans are far right and stuff like that. Here's the thing, right? That's a moral panic about people not wanting to feel embarrassed on the continent. The continent is somewhere very cultured, right? And we are, as far as they are concerned, we are sending the dregs over there and they are misrepresenting us at, to be football hooligans and lagerlouts and all that kind of stuff. Do you remember right at the start of the pandemic, one of the most viral videos that liberals were going crazy over was of a group of um sort of English working class guys stoking around in some town in like Portugal or Spain or something like that, pished, right? And the police were saying, looking confused and being like, why won't you just go home? And they were sort of like, you know, singing and talking shit and all sorts of stuff, right? I mean, let's be honest, we've all been that guy. Yeah. <laughs> but the, the thing is though, like, people need to separate out the irritating from the destructively awful right bunch of english guys on the ladder being uh, impolite to foreigners right spain when they're on their holiday or whatever isn't you know you may well feel irritated or embarrassed by that right it is not anywhere on the scale of the sorts of forces that socialists should actually be fighting against and they're not on a continuum either Donald Trump is not just the highest stage of the English ladder. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, but I, but this is like this is goes to the heart of like my frustration with this goody and baddie type politics is that what it does to people who want to challenge the status quo is that they end up being sucked into a side that they perceive to be goodies. And by the way, this isn't just about the left that see the world as goodies and baddies. You get this on the right as well. Oh, Do you know what I mean? You get this on, I mean, I think of like, um, I think a good example of it's also like Hillary Clinton's basket of deplorables. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and you can flip that to like, um, some of the right-wing rhetoric around the demonstrations in the states do you know like it's not exclusively just a left thing but we have i think that the left traditions of like resisting oppression uh anti-capitalist traditions marxist traditions have been so infected with this liberal goodies and baddies narrative that the ways to i mean i ha hate to even 
I hesitate to use the word resist because of its connotations with like Hillary Clinton and the resistance and it just sounds really naff now like how how are people who are getting engaged in what is a fight like they might see something on the news they might have looked at the murder of George Floyd they might have looked at the brutality of the police and their like cold-blooded approach to to ordinary people like the systematic incarceration of African Americans and become rightly enraged by it and then what do you do with that rage like it cannot the solution to fighting against racism and capitalism which especially in the US like go hand in hand like the development of American capital is the history of racism Mm -hmm. in, in the US like so the the answer to that cannot be like you know a white person going on some special journey to learn about their own internalized racism it can't be joining a facebook group for white allies that cannot be the solution otherwise we're not going to get anywhere Mm. And I think that I direct most of my ire to the left because we have essentially failed and, you know, build an organizational forums that allow people who are right, righteously angry um, and righteously angry, like here in Scotland, in solidarity and are now like talking about Sheikh Bayou and justice for him. You know, where do they go apart from funneled into this fight for goodies and baddies? Because there isn't any like institutional force on the left. Like we don't have big parties anymore. We don't have massively powerful militant industrial trade unions anymore. Like, you know, we don't have these forms. Um, And that's why I direct my ire of the goodies, baddies narrative to the left, even though I know like it doesn't just exist for the left, it exists for the right just as much. But of course, and, and by the way, it's it's a major um, tactical and strategic act of self-harm to believe in that conception of politics, um, because it means you can't appeal to the weak supporters of the other side. Uh, yeah, if you look on the right, for example, like your average right-wing radio host in America thinks that the Black Lives Matter protests are part of like a Chinese communist front run by the Democratic Party in America. Like, do and funded have, by Russia. Yeah, they have constructed a, a, a bizarre body of you know conspiracy and paranoid type ideas about goodies and baddies as well. The problem is, is like that half of the democratic establishment also think that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. They've been like the Washington Post, the failing New York Times, um, you know, all of these outlets have basically been put in all um, of these morbid symptoms within modern american politics down to russian interference or uh, chinese interference like i mean it exists on both of those like liberal elite sides of the coin yeah do you know i was about to mention in regard to this idea of goodies and baddies in politics that painting by that russian revolutionary uh, who i can't remember his name and it's that famous painting of a red wedge in, uh, it's called something like Beat the Whites with the Red Wedge, right? And it depicts um, the Reds splitting the white support. So the whites obviously in Russia were like counter-revolutionaries and the attitude of the Bolsheviks was you can only defeat them. I was about to mention that when I realised it's on my wall. 
It's on a plate on my wall. As so, I'm such a nerd, right? Is that a clock? I always wondered. It's a commemorative plate, uh, the Russian Revolution. It was, uh, it was, uh, they, they, they made, you know, X number of them in 2017 or whatever. Um, but the whole, the whole point of that painting was to uh, instruct Russian revolutionaries in a method of effective political action, which is to split the reactionary bloc. We are supposed to be splitting away Trump's supporters. We're not supposed to just be looking at them and thinking you're a basket of deplorables. We're supposed to be breaking down that coalition. On the basis of class. On the basis of class. We are supposed to be going to working, working class Trump voters of whom there was a significant element because they swung the ele- election for Trump, right? We should be systematically going to, I say we, I'm not talking, I'm not, because I'm not trying to like condemn the American left for doing this. I actually think, for example, Bernie Sanders' campaigns at times made, you know, significant moves in that direction. It's why we always said Sanders would be a, in a better position. Like, we actually want to win over some right-wing people. Like, if you, if you want to uh, have an effective militant socialist left, that does not mean that being extremely partisan on the side of the goodies. It means accepting that reactionary blocks develop out of real grievances. So the, in America, the, part of the whole project of American racism, as every great scholar of American racism has acknowledged, people like W.B. Du Bois and stuff like that, is that it's to turn poor whites against blacks and to give them a sense of a privileged position over blacks so that uh, so that you can so that you can wed them to your project of building capitalists together right the the most disastrous approach to that phenomenon is to go and point at all those poor whites and say you are privileged like that is what american capitalism offers them they don't want to think that they that they shouldn't be privileged they want to be privileged they want to be given that that little, this little gift, and it's just it's it's nominal. Do you know what I mean? I mean, um, uh, white poverty in the southern United States is much worse than it is in the north, because of that historical arrangement. Because uh, white working class people in the southern states, of the United States, traded away their power for a feeling of superiority. Um, now. Obviously, you can look at that situation. You only reinforce that by reinforcing the divide that people like Hillary Clinton on one hand and Donald Trump on the other want to construct. You can't defeat reactionary politics without driving a wedge into those communities and offering people something better. I mean, I don't disagree with any of that. Um, I think it's important as well to say that the development of the white American middle class has been built on the back of the black working class in the States. Mm-hmm. My, my worry about is, is to return to this theme is that this situation is ultimately resolved. If, if there isn't a more like strategic left, the situation is always resolved by creating a big tent around centrism. Though I have to say in Britain, Back to Starmer bashing, right? Do you know in, in Bristol, right? And that was that, that was an incredible scene, by the way, watching that. Statue oh, it's so good, doesn't it? 
It's unbelievable, man. I mean, I, like, it reminds you, by the way, that there is a quite an interesting phenomenon. I mean, I think we criticise in this podcast the idea that you can have a, a fully kind of metropolitan left, like a city-based left, and that we have a serious geographical problem in the, spread, in the spread of, like, left-wing politics. But it is an interesting phenomenon. There are several English cities which are, are clearly radicalised, including, including among them Leeds and Bristol which to me seems strange. But anyway, um, that, that was an incredible scene. Most interesting to me was the mayor backed them in tearing down the statue and um, the police refused to intervene. So the police watched what was happening and made a strategic judgment that it would only create more violence if they intervened to stop the statue being torn down. Now, I'm not sure entirely what that indicates. It could be, by the way, that they were totally unprepared for the numbers and just, they couldn't have stopped it from happening, right? So the police said, we stood by and watched, and that's it, right? Keir Starmer condemned it. So Keir Starmer oh, is the right of the police. He said that he understood why, you know, he gave one of those. I understand why, why people would do this, but it's wrong. So he's to the right of the police in this situation. Such position, honestly. Oh, wow, um, that is that is incredible. I, it's, it's total rubbish. Um, I, I mean, he, I feel like there's so much to talk about, like on this topic. Like, I would really like to maybe in the next episode go into like a bit about like Scotland's colonial past. Yeah, because I think that the that. action that was that happened in Glasgow, like changing the street names. And which are all named after people who profited off the slave trade. Um, mm-hmm. They were these signs were not replaced, um, but new signs were put up underneath them, um, like with reference to um, either memorialising um, black activists or um, one was Shekubayo Street. I thought that was a great action to do. Like I do mm. think that the psychic environment of the city does shape people's consciousness and how they feel about it and connected to the the place um so yeah i think we should do maybe next week a kind of like episode on that can i point out as i found i found this out the other day right as people say about glasgow by the way these names were not adopted way back when and we they're simply like an accretion of the past um a lot of the sort of imperialist and you know those kind of names they were recently placed on uh, on parts of Glasgow. The, the, see the development that's taken, the riverside development in Tradeston is called Buchanan Wharf. So in, in 2020, they are launching yet another geographical project, like area project yeah. in Glasgow after, uh, after people who, who made money from the slavery, which is, uh, sort of says it all really, do you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. Um, I don't know if you've seen any of that, by the way. It's quite hideous. No, um, I'm definitely going to check it out, though. It's it all hideous. glass and steel. Yeah, it's the Barclays development. That's, that's the, the, the Northern European headquarters of Barclays. Because what that's going to need is more banks. Yeah, but at least this bank will have a Black Lives Matter flag. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it'd be called the Cannon Wharf. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, think that's, I think that's us. Excellent. Do you have any concluding remarks? No. I mean, I, I don't... I agree, like, there's so much to discuss with this. I don't think we can do it all justice in one podcast. I think we should try and yeah. spread it out. I think so, too. Um, 
Okay, well, thanks for listening to Contercast. You can uh, subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Um, you can also uh, get up-to-date information about our series of lectures. Of course, this Thursday, we have a very exciting lecture coming up with David Harvey, who is a world-renowned Marxist economist, um, and that will be very exciting. So you can get your tickets by going to contour.co.uk. Um, where you can find out information about the Connor project and how to get involved and all that sort of stuff. Um, yeah, see you next week. See you soon. Bye.